0: I'm here to be a catalyst for awe. You are a character in your life. So what kind of story are you telling? Is it any good? Or is it kind of boring? Let's put it to the test. This is Character Test with Joe Bunting. Welcome to Character Test, my podcast about the characters we love and hate in the books we read, the films we watch, and the lives we lead. My name is Joe Bunting and I'm a best-selling author and the founder of the Right Practice.
1: And I'm Alice Sedlow. I'm the editor-in-chief of the Right Practice and a Storygrid editor.
0: So today, as always, we're going to start by putting a character to the test, Alice and I look at a character in a book we're reading or film we're watching and ask, is this actually a good character? And also, what can we learn from that character? Which character are we talking about today, Alice?
1: We're talking about Hiccup from How to Train Your Dragon.
0: After that, we're talking to Joshua Becker in 2008, before it was cool, Joshua began writing about minimalism. Eventually, he became a leader in the minimalist movement. He was also featured in the Netflix series, The Minimalists. And Joshua is also the best-selling author of The Minimalist Home and The More of Less. In this interview, we talk about purpose, how to discover the purpose of your home, the purpose of each room in your house, and even the purpose of our lives. And how we can use our possessions to enhance that purpose and not distract from it. I immediately left this interview and went and decluttered my house and it felt amazing. I think you might experience the same thing. Then the last part of our show is our character study where we ask what we can learn in our own lives as we try to live a better story. Thanks for listening to the Character Test Show. We have a free prize for everyone who listens to this episode. I'm not going to tell you what it is. You'll have to find out for yourself. You can get it at charactertestshow.com episode 9. Again, go to charactertestshow.com episode 9 to get a free prize related to this episode. All right, Alice, it's time for the character test portion of our show. Today, we're examining Hiccup from How to Train Your Dragon. We're talking about the film version, I'm assuming, right?
1: Yes, the film version. I have a really uh, pretty serious policy about never watching a movie before I read the book. And every now and then, I break that rule. And I broke that rule for this movie. And then it became my favorite movie, like of all of the movies in the world. All of them. Yes. So well, you, except for maybe the second How to Train Your Dragon movie.
0: So I have read the book. All right. And I read it to my kids, and I think you should. Con- it's a fun book, but it's very different from the film. And I think you should continue to not read the book.
1: <laughs> I was. Con- I have thought for years. That's how motivated I have been to actually do anything about this. Uh, that considering how much I love this movie, like a whole, whole lot, uh, that I should at some point read the book. But that is a compelling argument against, I I think if we
0: put the character from the book to the test, we would have a slightly different result. Not a giant, well, maybe a a medium-level result. Not a giant difference. But I think the book is actually not as good as the movie, which is rare, and... Uh, It's just a really good movie.
1: All right. All right. I can accept that. I love to celebrate this movie. It is amazing. I'm here with all of the animated film recommendations. That's my, (laughs) my niche on this podcast. Nice. So
0: we're talking about the first film as well, right? Yes. Okay. So why don't you tell us about it?
1: So in How to Train Your Dragon... Hiccup, the protagonist, lives in the Viking village of Berk. Berk is besieged by dragons and all of the villagers train to kill them because that's how they deal with their pest control. Hiccup is a pretty scrawny little human and no one really believes that he'll be able to do that and so they kind of try to stop him as much as possible from being able to kill the dragons, from being able to engage in like almost this village community activity of fighting the dragons. So he tries to prove himself But even though he does manage to shoot a dragon out of the sky, he finds that he doesn't have it in himself to actually kill the dragon. Instead, he and the dragon becomes friends, and then he sets out to change his community's perception of dragons.
0: Great. So why did you pick Hiccup to test Alice?
1: I think that what we'll find as we go through this is that Hiccup is an underdog character, and... I love underdog stories. Everyone, loves, everyone underdog. loves underdog stories. I think that's a theme that's come up in our in almost every episode of the podcast so far is that everyone loves a good underdog story. And I think this is a fantastic one. There are a ton of elements that I love about this movie. I love that there are dragons. I love that it focuses on teenagers, but with a, a clear explanation for why the teenagers are the protagonists. So often I think that they, you can fall into this kind of YA trap of being like, well, it's going to be a YA book, therefore I will make my teenagers save the world. But I prefer a story where it's really clear why the teenagers are the, the random characters who are going to save the world. Hmm. And in this one, Hiccup specifically sees the world in a way that is unique from everyone else in his community. And part of that is the fact that he's 15. Like, I think if he were older, then maybe some of this special, unique vision of the world might be rubbed off or, or adjusted somewhat. He might lose some naivete, but he, because he's so young, has a unique perspective. And that means that this story specifically has to happen around this kind of, this, t- this point in his life for him.
0: So let's put Hiccup to the test using our four handy criteria for what makes an interesting character, starting with his goal. Does Hiccup have a goal. And what is that goal?
1: He does. So his goal right at the beginning is to prove himself by killing a dragon. And pretty quickly that changes because he realizes that he doesn't want to kill a dragon. He wants to change how we view dragons. He wants to connect with dragons and understand them. So his goal instead becomes to change his community's view of dragons. I think that the greater piece of this here is that before, at the beginning, His goal is to become what his community wants him to be. They have an expectation for him, and he wants to fulfill that because that's the way to become part of this community. And pretty quickly, he realizes that will never be what he is able to be. And so instead, he tries to become more of himself. He tries to nurture what is special about him and discover who he is, really, fulfill what makes him unique.
0: And that eventually leads to his acceptance in his community. So actually by focusing more on himself, he becomes more accepted.
1: It is, but it's really hard because at first his community is not willing to consider that there are different ways of existing in the world. And so they try to uh, convince him not to engage with the world in this way. They try to force it out of him and it takes a long time before he's able to convince them that... He is better this way, and they are also better this way.
0: So you're getting ahead of us into our <laughs> challenge section. He does have a goal. Does Hiccup overcome challenges to accomplish that goal? So you're talking about the community's attitude. Yes. Uh, and what other challenges does he face?
1: First off, he faces the fact that he is this small, scrawny human being who is not strong. He doesn't have the kind of physical abilities that a lot of his community has, but he does have a lot of creativity and intelligence and inventiveness uh, and willingness to try different things. So he's got that kind of physical weakness and maybe an intellectual strength or strength of attitude in the world. And then... He has the the challenge of discovering what is the real threat to the dragons, discovering the realm, the ways in which dragons are legitimately dangerous hmm. because they are not free from danger. Just because he befriends a dragon doesn't mean that everything is perfect. There is still a level of danger sure. to the dragons, and so navigating all them,
0: dragons are not friendly.
1: Correct, correct, and navigating the fine line between what is the safe and beneficial way to interact with dragons versus what is the dangerous one. But really, the big, the big hurdle is his community. And also, specifically, the movie makes that uh, more personal because he is, his father is the chief yeah. of the community. So not only is it a friction with a broad community, it's also a close family connection friction.
0: Yeah, totally. All right. Good characters make decisions. Does Hiccup make decisions? And can you point to one early on in the story?
1: Yes, He does make decisions. He makes lots of decisions throughout the entire movie. And some of them have really negative consequences for him. But I think that that's one of the things that makes him a great character. He, a couple of his early decisions are when he's told in the very first fight in the opening scenes of the movie that he is not willing, or he's not welcome to come join in the battle against the dragons. Uh, he
0: Because he's the biggest klutz of all time, right?
1: Exactly, exactly. Because they point out he has screwed up like the last seven or so battles. So he needs to stay back this time. He ignores that and he runs out and he goes down to, to shoot down a dragon. And he does succeed in shooting down a dragon. And, and then he burns
0: down the village. He
1: also succeeds in burning down the village. <laughs> So, yes. And no one believes him that he shot down a dragon because it just so happens that it was a, a black dragon in the middle of the night and it yeah. didn't land in the community. So everyone's like, you're you you're are making things up here.
0: So is Hiccup empathizable?
1: I think he is. I think that we all have places of feeling disconnection with our communities. I think we all have areas of tension where we wonder uh where we kind of walk a tension between conforming to expectations versus self actualization, and the way that I frame that makes that sound like the negative option and the positive option, but I think that there are ways too in which our communities can challenge us to grow and be better. so it's always this walking this tension of in how much do we hold to what we see in ourselves or that isn't fitting in our community, and how much do we work really hard to create connections. From with, with what other people are looking for from us.
0: Yeah, agreed. And I think for me, like he desires so much the approval of his dad yeah. and of his community. I think that's really relatable. Anyone who has a dad who wants them to notice them. You know, I have three kids and they're always like, daddy, watch this. And daddy, let me show you this thing. And, and it's kind of natural thing that we all have
1: some of the funniest and also most painfully awkward scenes in the movie are almost every single conversation that he has with his dad, because they both entirely fail to listen to each other 100% of the time.
0: It's true. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Last thing. What can we learn from Hiccup?
1: I think that we can learn this kind of Gutsy determination, that's one big aspect to his character. It's a bold, bold choice when he realizes in the first quarter of the movie that he cannot kill a dragon and therefore he's going to very intentionally walk a path of never killing a dragon, which is goes in contradiction to everything that his community expects of him. So this kind of gutsy determination that enables him to make bold choices like that. And I think that uh, the concept of being true to yourself is a really important piece of this movie.
0: Yeah, rather than trying to become just what the community and what your, you know, family wants you to be, being true to who you are and, and your own kind of personality and calling actually could lead you to greater acceptance.
1: Yeah, yeah, and could enrich your community. As opposed to destroying the community, because I think there's some fears mm-hmm. that his father and other members of the community have when he brings this difference to them essentially, totally. that this difference will destroy them, that they will lose who they are if they shift their their way of thinking. And he manages to bring it to them ultimately in a way that enriches everyone.
0: Yeah, takes all kinds. Awesome, well that's it for Hiccup. Let's get into our interview with Joshua. All right. Hey, everyone. I'm here with Joshua Becker of Becoming Minimalist. Joshua is a leader in the minimalist movement, and I'm so excited to talk to him today. Uh, Joshua, thank you for being here with us.
2: Well, the pleasure is mine talking to you, Joe. (laughs) So, let's start at the beginning. You grew up in
0: northern, kind of the northern Midwest, in South Dakota and North Dakota,
2: both Dakotas, which is kind of a feat, actually. I was going to say Northern Midwest is a nice way to say the Dakotas. <laughs> nice euphemism. But you lived
0: up. in Nebraska as well. <laughs> what, was your, what was your childhood like growing up there?
2: Oh, I grew up in Aberdeen, South Dakota, a town of 20-some thousand people. My grandparents on my mom's side lived there. My dad's side were farmers a little bit farther south, and so... Yeah, small town, South Dakota. It was great. Uh, I have a twin brother. I have a sister a year younger. And uh, we were there for, I don't know, until fifth or sixth grade, spent a year in Minnesota, ended up in North Dakota for most of high school, Mm. Uh, and then Nebraska to finish everything off. My dad was a banker and different banks and different steps up. Moved us to uh, different cities and different places. I liked it. My mom, uh, my mom always said she thought moving was the best thing that ever happened to us because you learn that you can make friends in new places. Mm. And um, so maybe that was just her way of yeah, shining a shining an okay light on the fact that we were moving. But I uh, I believe it to be true. It was uh, it was good.
0: Now, did you get along with your siblings? Were they close to you? You had a twin brother, like were you closer? Did you fight a lot?
2: Uh, well, my brother and I fought a lot. He's a twin. I'm about six foot one eighty. He is six five two forty. Whoa. And uh, so he was playing. He was starting tight end on the football team, and I was playing tennis. And we both are highly, highly competitive. So there's probably always a lot of jealousy in my life. Looking at him starting on the basketball team while I was on the while I was on the bench, so we were pretty competitive. We actually grew, uh, although we've been very close um, the entire time. I mean, love each other is never never any un- any unhealthy competition. We ended up going to different colleges, and that was probably the best thing that happened to our to you, our relationship. You weren't
0: roommates in college; that would have been hard.
2: <laughs> yes, indeed,
0: <laughs> harder than that. So, as a teenager, you, in your words, accepted your faith. Can you tell us the story of that experience?
2: Oh, sure. My So, my grandfather is a pastor. He actually still is, 98 years old, still a full-time pastor Whoa. in Aberdeen, South Dakota. So, I always grew up in the, the church. Christian faith was always important to me. It was always a part of my life and part of my family's life growing up. When I was seventeen, I think I made like my own personal decision right you can You can grow up in a home that goes to church and be involved with everything, be involved in the faith, but at, at some point, I think you have to decide whether you 're going to accept it as your own or not and That happened when I was a, a senior in high school. Uh, we had actually just moved to Omaha, Nebraska and kind of got plugged in at a new church there, and um, that was the the difference for me, I ended up. Be, I ended up becoming a pastor, actually, later in life. But yeah, that was a pretty influential moment for me. I still remember. I remember where I was. It was a Wednesday night. I was in my bedroom, kneeling by my bed, and just said, "I don't think I've ever fully decided that that this was going to be the life that I was going to live or the worldview that I was going to accept." And um, so I can remember it vividly even today. Wow. Was that an
0: emotional experience for you? I mean, some people, when they talk about coming to faith, they, you know, talk about what they felt and, and you know, kind of even a physical feeling. Was that something that you felt?
2: I've never been a particularly emotional person. I don't experience a lot of highs and a, a lot of lows. And so, it would have been out of character for me anyway. But and then I would add, my experience wasn't one where I had left the faith, and so I had a moment of coming back to it, or a, a, a looking back on my life lived one way, and had this very right come to Jesus moment. I guess is even the phrase that we use like that. That wasn't it. It was it was more like I've always been involved in this. I've just never made that specific decision. So any emotion i was feeling was maybe oh now this makes sense to me uh, why didn't i see this earlier that type of that type of emotion more than more than hmm. anything other than that yeah
0: so when you were yeah. 25 you were you offered the chance to move to princeton new jersey or you had the opportunity to move and and princeton of course is where princeton university is. My sister lives not far from there, actually. And I got to visit when I was younger. And I think you actually feel smarter and more disciplined when you're walking around that town. But at the same time, you, were, you had the chance to move to a small town in Wisconsin, which I'm assuming didn't carry as much prestige. Can you tell us about that decision and, and what it was like to be faced with, you know, choosing between two different places and how you made that choice?
2: Yeah, so if I were to take even a, a step back, I went to, and we can talk about more if you want, but just to get to answer to this question, uh, I went to college to to become a banker. But towards the end of my college career, I decided to become a pastor instead, which is very interesting because both my grand, like my father was the banker, and then my mom's side was the pastor, and so I was going to do one, ended up changing my mind and decided to become a pastor. Did an internship at a church in Omaha, Nebraska. And then when the internship was over, I ended up interviewing at two different churches to go start my career. And yeah, one was Princeton, New Jersey, white white collar. It was a large church, a large mega church. And there was that opportunity. And then there was this small town, Menominee, Wisconsin, which I don't even think had 20,000 people. And it had a college, but it had even more farmers and so kind of this blue this blue collar uh, smaller church and I, I, it was just a moment where I remember being forced with like two very distinct, unique opportunities, very different. And I debated for uh, a week and a half. Me and my wife uh, debated which would be the which would be the right place to go to, and had a sheet of paper with like the advantages to each. Hmm. What
0: were? the down. I mean, it sounds to me like for for many people that would be a very clear choice. What were the debate sides? What were
2: the pros and cons? Yes, that was the debate. the The debate was why in the world would I not go to Princeton, New Jersey. <laughs> what like why would I not choose to go there? And yet for some reason there was something that was that was drawing us to a to a smaller town. So and I mean it would have been a five hour drive from both of our families. My wife's family's in Nebraska and my family's in South Dakota. And so we were we'd be able to drive back as opposed to New Jersey, which was the other side of the country. Uh, New Jersey would very much have been a, a different culture than I grew up in in South Dakota and North Dakota, and so was I ready to to completely change that? I'll tell you what the the biggest factor was, and I I'm sure neither of them are listening, so it's okay for me to to share this. But we during the interview process at both of the churches, the last night on each of the weekends, we had dinner with the lead pastor at the church. And the the lead pastor of the church in Princeton, we went to this fancy steakhouse. And it was kind of this long table with a bunch of guys wearing suits and white collars and had this amazing, fine meal. At the church in Wisconsin, we went over to the, the guy's house for dinner. And I don't think he served us leftovers, but it was like something that the, you know, the wife had just whipped up in the in the kitchen. And we spent the evening in their living room. And when when I got back and just debated between the two, I just remember thinking, when I get older, which of these pastors do I want to be more like? Mm. And one was definitely business-driven and growth mindset in that world. Uh, the other one, the relationship seemed to be based on love and like genuinely caring for us as a person as opposed to building an organization, even if it was a church, which is which is a noble um, which is a noble thing. So it it came down to that. And um came down to uh eating at Perkins with my wife for dinner in Omaha and um looking at the list and saying, I think we're gonna go to Wisconsin. I, I think that when I get older, I would much rather resemble him than, uh, than the gentleman I met in, in New Jersey. So, but yeah. on paper, right. I mean, fr- from the outside, I'm like, why would I ever make this decision? But I ended up doing it and don't regret it. Don't regret it at
0: all. Well, you said that, uh, you don't think either of them are listening. We actually have really big numbers in uh, Menominee, Wisconsin, and oh. Princeton, New Jersey. So, I don't know. that could You, you might regret telling that story. I'm okay. But...
2: I'm okay with large numbers in <laughs> Menominee because I just said kind things. That's true. Uh, it's your, it's your sister's friends in Princeton that worry a little bit
0: more. <laughs> uh, that's great. So, You first became aware and really interested in minimalism when you were cleaning out your garage and your son asked you to play with him but you said no because you had to take care of all your accumulated stuff, right? Can you tell us that story?
2: So I um, ended up living five years in in Wisconsin and then moving to Vermont uh, and lived there for six years. So New Jersey's not New England, but at least I got a little of the New England, which is much closer to the East Coast than Wisconsin is. So um, funny how, how life works out that way, I think. But yeah, living in Vermont, uh, spring cleaning my house, this would have been 11 and a half years ago now, crazy when I think about how long I've been writing about this and Pursuing it but um yeah spring cleaning in Vermont um, spring is a pretty short time in in Vermont long winters and mud season and and I was cleaning out my garage my son was five years old I spent hours working on my garage and at one point my neighbor my neighbor was doing all of her spring cleaning that day as well and we started talking and I was complaining how much time and effort had gone into cleaning out the garage. She says, you know, that's why my daughter's a minimalist. She keeps telling me that I don't need to own all this stuff. And I looked at the pile of things in my driveway. I saw my son swinging alone on the swing set in the backyard. And I think like like in the moment it clicked that my possessions aren't making me happy, which all of us would say, right? We're not looking for happiness in our possessions, but Suddenly, I realized not only were my things not making me happy, they were actually taking me away from the very thing that did bring me happiness in life, which is a very different realization and really is the the foundation of minimalism. Why someone would intentionally own less stuff is when we begin to realize how much our possessions take away from our finite resources, our money and time and energy and focus and how, how they ultimately become a a big distraction to the life that we wish that we were living instead. And so that's what, yeah, changed my life and started writing about it. And there you go. So that happened
0: in like 2008. Is that
2: right? Yeah. 2008. So that
0: was like, you know, no one was Marie Kondoing their house at that point the minimalism it wasn't really a movement it was just like some a few people were talking about this idea this was really early on so you know it was kind of a, a rare thing i think all of us are a little bit familiar with minimalism at this point but at that point that was kind of a unique mm-hmm. thing did it feel mm-hmm. like kind of brave or weird to be pursuing this new kind of thing?
2: Um, There were, as best I can tell, uh, I don't know of any blogs that were dedicated solely to minimalism at the time. I mean, I can't think of any websites that were specifically about that when I first started. There were people talking about it in contexts of other things. They were usually pretty extreme Hmm. minimalists uh, trying to own less than a hundred things, everything they own fit in a backpack. I think there was a guy who one time lived with like just 12 items. Like he wanted to see how long he could live with just 12 things. It was very interesting. So like there was that very extreme part of it. And I started writing about it and I had no intention of going down to 100 things. There's a family of four I mean, we're a family of four, and I didn't even want to move out of my house. I liked our neighborhood. I liked the people that we were involved with, our neighbors. I just wanted to embrace it in my specific context. And so I started writing about it, and there were certainly, well, there were two things that popped up. Number one, like I was always a little nervous if I was hijacking the word to mean something that it didn't mean. Someone commented pretty early on, and they're like, I like the way you talk about minimalism. It seems so rational. And I'm like, Yeah, rational minimalism. That's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about getting down to a dozen things. I'm talking about how does minimalism apply to your unique family and occupation and passion and values and goals in life. So I was always a little nervous that I was maybe hijacking the term to make it mean something that that it didn't mean. And then there was a lot more, I think, combating misconceptions about the word. Anyone who had heard the word always thought, you know, living out of a backpack or living in the woods with nothing. Whenever I would go to speak, I would always say, don't use the word minimalism, say decluttering or owning less because those words would draw more people than minimalism did. And it's different now. You can use the word minimalism and people are drawn to it because they've heard it and they want to know more about it or they've heard it and they believe it and they want to live it out more in their life. So, that's been a big change over 11 years for sure. That's
0: so interesting. And then when I think about that story and your son kind of playing by himself on the swing set, I mean, I think as a parent personally that like pulls my heartstrings a little bit, but like, did he look really sad? I mean, in my, in my picture, in my head, I see him kind of swinging with his head down. What did he look like?
2: Oh gosh. I, I mean, the story doesn't work if he was happy, <laughs> uh, joyfully swinging, glad that he was alone. Right. The story only works if there's, if he's got his head down and he's turning circles you know, fiddling toe into the dirt. So I'll take the second one. <laughs> I, you know, I, it's, it's funny. It's, it isn't it interesting how, how stories like stories begin to change almost what reality mm. was, you know, I mean, and, and the more often you, you tell a story, uh, the more it becomes what you, what you envision. And so I, sometimes I go back and like how much of this is actually true. Like mm-hmm. if it actually plays out the way that I tell the story now, or if I've just found a way that the story connects with other people. And so that has become the, the truth. And, and so I, I probably couldn't get into the specific emotion of him. I know, I know the emotion that I felt, yeah. uh, right. And I'm trying to remember him
0: exactly. It's, and the emotion you felt was that I wish I wasn't cleaning my garage right now. I wish I was playing with my son.
2: It was a combination of failing my son mm. in that moment, right? Like like he's the one I should be with. What am I doing? Wasting my day, taking care of stuff. So there was a bit of that. And then there was just the notion of, I, I don't even, if I didn't have all this stuff, I wouldn't have to be taking care of it. And I could be doing what I wish I was doing, uh, what I wish I was doing instead. And then over the years, I think, like helping understand and put better words to that emotion of how our possessions have actually become a distraction from the places that we do find joy and meaning and significance and fulfillment in life is, is rarely buying a pile of junk in the driveway, right? Like those were words that came a little bit Mm -hmm. later um, as I thought about it and wrote about it and shared the story.
0: Yeah. How long did it take you to get rid of all that junk in your driveway?
2: Um, it was about, I usually divide that into into three different things. Uh, it took us about two or three months to get through like the lived-in areas of our house. Uh, it took nine months to get through the entire home. So, garage, basement, storage shed, right, can be a little bit on the back burner because you're not in there necessarily every single day. So, Nine months to get through the house, but we ended up moving into a smaller house three and a half years later, and got rid of even more things when we moved into the smaller house. But nine months is usually how I how I answer wow. the question.
0: So your latest book, The Minimalist Home, really focuses on purpose, and you ask, "What is the purpose of my life? What is the purpose of my home? What is the purpose of this room?" And how do I use things in my life to bring focus to that purpose rather than to distract from that purpose? Can you give us some examples of how things can distract us from
2: our purpose? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, certainly you have, you have the big picture of, you know, I don't, I don't think anyone says their greatest goal in life is to... Own as much junk as they possibly can, right at least a very few number of people would say that 's their greatest goal in life when When you ask someone where they most want to accomplish with their life they usually you hear love and relationships and significance uh, faith pops up for a lot of people, so like these are the things that that we really want to do with our life and accomplish with our life. We just tend to become i call it culture call it society call it unhealthy motivations in our heart right we we end up just wasting money and time and energy pursuing things that that are not the biggest goals that we that we have in life so so things become a distraction in and that way the the book it it is it's a it's a very purpose driven purpose based book it's not hey, here's the things to get rid of in your kitchen and here's the things to get rid of in your living room and your arts and crafts room. But it's, although it goes through the different spaces, it starts by asking the question, like, what do you want to do with your life? What do you want to accomplish with your life? What do you want to accomplish with your home? What is the purpose of, what is the purpose of home? Like, that's a question that most of us don't even think to ask. And then it it gets down very like very micro like what is the purpose of this room? What room does what role does this room serve in your life? And usually, I mean to specifically answer your question, like the bedroom is your perfect example. Like, what is the purpose of a bedroom? Like, the purpose of a bedroom is for rest and intimacy. Like in most, like that is the goal of your bedroom. And so what things do you have in your bedroom that are actually keeping your bedroom from doing that well? I some people might argue that their television helps them relax, help helps them rest or helps them foster intimacy. And maybe it does, but for me I found that it it wasn't doing that. Mm. A television in my bedroom was keeping me up later at night. It was keeping my wife and I from talking about important things at night when we were finally alone and the kids were in bed or distracted from other things I wish we were doing (laughs) rather than talking, right? And so, like, that became a pretty good example of something that was distracting from focus. And the living room, like, the living room is where we watch television, not the bedroom, so... your bathroom, right? Like what's the bathroom? The bathroom should be there to help you get ready and prepare for the day. And, you know, a bunch of knickknacks in there that are making getting ready harder than it needs to be more stressful than it needs to be. What are the the decorations in these rooms? Are they, you know, are they fostering those goals and those purposes or are they uh, distracting from it? Mm. So for you, what is your purpose? What do you want to accomplish with your life? Well, yeah, I go back to my faith. I want to be like faith has always been important to me. I, I want to be um, I want to live the, the best god-fearing life that that I can. I want to be a faithful husband. Uh, I want to be an intentional, loving father. And at this moment in my life, I want to inspire and equip people to own less stuff and uh, overcome our addiction to possessions and overcome the draw of possessions in our life. That's, that's what I most want to do. Uh, with my life right now. And maybe it changes, right? I mean, hopefully I'll always be a spouse and, and a father, but you know, maybe my, the specific significant role impact that I want to have in the world might, might change, but that's what it is right now. And has been for the last six, six years I've been doing this. Wow.
0: How do you measure success in those accomplishments?
2: Yeah, boy, that's a good one. Huh? Um, i 've never been good at like writing down goals i 'm not a big whiteboard guy. What are the measurables I'm, that's i don 't do that well. Some people do it well and can can write down those things and this is what it looks like to do that i uh, i 've never been that so I know in so i 've been writing full time for six years becoming minimalist and one of the things that I, I think I constantly try to remind myself of is like my goal with my business is to help as many people as possible, not how do I make as much money as possible, but how do I how do we help as many people as possible? And when that becomes the the filter as opposed to how do I make more money doing this is like a never ending Goal right, like you can always do something different to make more money, but when you when the filter becomes how do I help as many people as possible? sometimes you help as many people as possible by making more money so you can do more things. sometimes it means you make a decision to not make money on this because it would help other people to me it, I think it becomes a, a better question to answer and I don't know, probably should be the nature of all of our work, right? Like all of our work really should be, I do this work because it helps other people. And in exchange for that, it provides for my needs and allows someone else to do something for me that um, they're better at. So sure. that's a whole other conversation on the nature <laughs> of work. Yeah. Now,
0: I mean, I guess you can make an argument too, that helping more people is also never ending. Do you ever feel like the strain from like, there's always going to be more people to help or more people to reach with this message that you're kind of on a treadmill of helping people?
2: Well, I think you, it, it doesn't necessarily become a never ending question, uh, never ending goal, because at some point, at least in my mind i keep thinking because at some point maybe i'm not actually helping people how many subscribers can i get to my email list like that's not a measure of am i actually helping these people because there's a lot of things that i can do to get email subscribers that aren't actually helping people and and there comes a point where at least like me as an individual where have I gone so wide with reaching people that I'm not actually going deep with anyone and not actually able to help any help anybody. And so I think there comes a time where no, the goal here isn't I'm going to help more people, but how do I significantly help the people that are already here? So I don't know, maybe, maybe that's harder than I think. This episode is brought
0: to you by The Right Practice Pro. The Right Practice Pro is an amazing community of creative writers where you can post your writing, get feedback on it, and figure out how to turn your writing into beautiful, award winning books, short stories, or novels. I personally post my own writing to this community to get feedback. And if you have any interest in becoming a published, award winning writer, you should too. The Right Practice Pro is for anyone writing a book novel, short story, or poem, or anyone who just wants to improve their creative writing, if you want to become a better writer, getting good feedback is something you must invest in. And The Right Practice Pro is the best place to get it. You can sign up for The Right Practice Pro at therightpractice.com slash join. Yeah, I mean, I think when we last connected, it was in Atlanta, you were speaking at a conference. And your first question to me after we you know, caught up a little bit was, how do I help the people who are at this event? And what message do they need to hear? And your questions were about, you know, where where do they need help? And I think that's an important thing and a challenging thing. I think you know, as a writer too, who has to make his living off of people's attention, really. It can be really hard to not look at, you know, how many people are, are following this week, how many people are downloading this podcast, how many people are signing up for my programs, buying my books, et cetera. And I feel like part of your message and part of minimalism is also not just talking about stuff, but also, you know, getting back to purpose of of our work and our life and what we're really about and our values. Like, do you feel that tension and how do you kind of handle it?
2: So, as, as much as I possibly can, right i mean no one's perfect and i think it's always a, a struggle for anybody and everybody but i i honestly believe that when you start helping people the money and the numbers come right like if you're chasing the the money and the numbers you're chasing the wrong thing but if as a writer as a podcast right if you're if your constant question is Okay, how do I help people today? How do I help people with this book? How do I write a book that's gonna help people, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, whatever you might be writing? How do I how do I move people forward in their life or how do I just move them emotionally and help them, you know, help them discover things, you know, through that experience? that that's when people start to find you and stick with you and follow you. They realize that you're worth investing in. There comes a point where they get to the point where they're like, okay, I'm ready to give him some money for the help that he's giving to me. Really all business, all work. You know, I mean, some business is about manufacturing need and then trying to fix it, you know, but... I think most business most of the work that we do is realizing that that people have a need that, that we can meet and and we can reach and when we start doing that the money and the numbers tend to tend to follow. Hmm. Not always not in every case but um I think in a lot of cases right? Yeah. Nothing's guaranteed and some things have to line up and timing and luck has to be on your side for sure but uh but when you make that your your goal I I think you Depending how many people you reach, I, me personally, I get to lay my head down on the pillow at night and and know that I didn't shortcut, I didn't sacrifice my my morals or my values for the for the dollar. But spent my day trying to trying to help people and mm. see where it shakes out. Yeah.
0: So when you published, I think it was your first book, but you can correct me on that. You decided to give the advance you got on that book to start a nonprofit called The Hope Effect, uh, which is an organization that supports orphans by taking care of their physical needs, also providing them with a foster family. Uh, Your work is mostly in Mexico and Honduras. Why did you decide to give your advance away uh, and, and how has that choice impacted your life?
2: Yeah. Uh well it was the advance for both books because yep. I signed a two uh two book contract at the time. And it was it was most of the advance, 75% of it. I think it ended up shaking out being. We kept some to help promote the book. And right, the writer's gotta cover his own costs out of the out of the advance. So mm-hmm. um anyway. Yeah, you know what? The the book I, I offered to write two books. Uh one was a book about minimalism, one was gonna be a book about money and uh, how money isn't the answer and, and doesn't bring happiness into our life. Ended up writing a different second book, but pitched the book to 10 publishers. Uh, nine of them made offers on the book. And I remember asking my agent, what do we do now? And he's like, well, we just bid them against each other until you find one that you that you feel comfortable with. And I just remember thinking like very early on that I was going to get paid a lot of money to write a book about owning less and how money doesn't bring happiness into our life. And I just told Kim, I'm like, we're gonna be tested like as soon as we sign this contract. Do we really believe everything we're we're gonna write? I mean, we could go buy a bigger house and bigger television and we can invest this money and try to retire early and become wealthy. Or we could we could legitimately do what what I what I believe brings real joy and happiness in life. So we started the Hope Effect, and it's been great. I feel like you're solving a, a problem. It's interesting when you start solving a problem, people will come to you and tell you that there's other problems that you should be working on. Um, so there's a, a part of staying true, I think, to the, the one problem that you want to solve and yeah. where you want to solve it. Probably the biggest criticism I get is from people who say, why are you working in Mexico and Honduras when there's such a need in the U.S. already? And I always just answer, look, we need people helping orphan children in the U.S. and we need people helping orphan children around the world and we've chosen to do the latter, we, but we need people doing both. We need people working on that problem and this problem and, and that problem. So that's been, that's been interesting. I personally, I, I love the fact that, that that's where the money went. I feel like I can, I can stand up in, in front of people who, who want to say, yeah, but you're making a lot of money writing about minimalism. You know, why, why are you doing that? Is that fair? And get to say, well, here's what we're doing with it. I'm I'm not buying a big house somewhere in Franklin, Tennessee, right? Like, like we're, <laughs> like we're, we're doing it and, and we're solving problems and, and we're helping people with that money. So I, I enjoy being able to say that and um, knowing that we're making a difference. That's kind of the maybe the selfish view of it, but um, do you do you ever
0: go visit uh, any of the families that you're helping?
2: Um, I have been to Honduras and yeah, I've been to uh, been to Mexico several times. We have executive director Joe Derrigo and he handles all the day to day stuff of running the the Hope Effect. So. Haven't been there in a while, but but yeah, I was certainly there a lot early on when we were kind yeah. of laying the, laying the foundation for What's it. it like to visit and know that you
0: were part of making that happen? Do you focus more on the solution that you're coming up with or, or on how much more there is to do?
2: Well, I personally get to focus more on the solution. Joe is there a lot more often and and sees the need uh, more than more than I do. I get more of the the reports and the feedback on you know what we've been what we've been able to do. So that's an interesting question. The way you phrase it, uh, I think when I go there, I am in maybe more humbled than. Pride in in what's taking place. I talked to the the reason Joe became the executive director is because I took him out for coffee one time and he helped plan out the whole thing like very early on when we were talking about doing this and he had about a dozen questions about how we were gonna do this that I hadn't even thought to answer. And I'm like, oh I never thought of that. I've never thought of that. I've never thought of that I guess I don't really know what I'm what I'm doing here and so we're like I need someone other than me to actually implement this on the ground and so he's he's done it he's done it all like we've you know used the becoming minimalist community to to raise some money and obviously the book advance you know provided a lot of the fuel that we needed and the foundation to to get everything up and running but as far as what's happening now I couldn't possibly take credit for, for hardly any of it. Cause, cause Joe's the one putting in the, the yeah. hard work doing it. So humbled yeah. in that way that none of this would have happened if it wasn't for all the people um, doing the good work, making it happen.
0: So I read an article recently that talked about how people aren't always happy after they remodel their home. And I'm thinking about this because I have a very small house and I have a lot of children and like we could use some more space that would be a good thing for our lives i think but i read this article that said people are sometimes happy with their home remodel if their house is 25 percent larger than any other house in their neighborhood like they get a level of satisfaction from knowing that they have like the biggest house on the block and as soon as someone else builds another house you know that's the same size or bigger in their house, they lose their level of happiness from their house, so it becomes you know obviously this treadmill and it's you know impossible to keep up with it unless you you know move to a poor neighborhood and build a bigger house so I'm wondering two things like one, do you think it's possible to be happy with your current stuff and two, like you could buy a bigger house, do you ever get? tempted to do that, and how do you you
2: know not give in to that, or do you uh, not give into it i don 't know <laughs> uh, the second one is uh, no i uh, I am not tempted to to buy uh, to buy a bigger house now uh, maybe stage of life allows me to to get there, although my kids were let's see they're sixteen and thirteen we moved eight years ago they were eight and five when we moved. From a, it was a twenty three hundred square foot home to a sixteen hundred square foot home, so it's not like we're. I mean, it was the smallest model in the neighborhood that we wanted to to live in. Is how we picked how we picked the house that we're in. So it's not small, you know, compared to to some houses, just to put everything into context. But um, there's some stage of life stuff. So my kids now are sixteen and thirteen, and we're not. Adding like we're not going to be a family of six, and we know that they're going to be leaving the house as opposed to bringing more kids in. So there's a part of that I think that factors into it. But no, I mean I I drive by big houses now, and I'm like, who changes the light bulb? The light bulbs in that thing. Like I don't even want to maintain a a larger house than I have than I have now. I, I don't want a bigger mortgage payment than I have now. I I love I like what we have, so I'm not particularly tempted and yeah, I think people can find happiness in in what they have the The key is the exact opposite of the people who think that they're going to find happiness by remodeling their house or building or building a bigger one um and I'm not saying there isn't any space for taking care of the things that we have or remodeling something inside of the home if the need is there, but it's people who say. I don't need a bigger house to be happy. I don't need more stuff to be happy. I can find happiness where I am. I can find contentment with the things that I have. Those are the people who find happiness right where they are. The people who always think happiness is going to be in the bigger paycheck or the nicer house or the next purchase, those are the ones who never end up finding it because they keep looking, they keep looking in the wrong place for it.
0: Wow. All right, last question. Who is your favorite character in a novel or nonfiction book or a film?
2: Who is my favorite character? My favorite character. My favorite character. Do I have a favorite character? I probably shouldn't put my head in my face while I'm talking into a no microphone. <laughs> put my hands around my face. Um, uh, my favorite, can I do television? I mean, sure. Michael Scott's my favorite just cause he makes me laugh. And, um, I, uh, I, I love the distraction from real life that, that Michael Scott from the office yeah. is, I have always called to kill a mockingbird as my favorite novel. Um, uh, no. certainly Jesus, Jesus from the Bible is someone I would like to be more like, yeah, it's uh, cheating. As difficult as difficult as that can be probably the reason I struggle with it is my favorite book to read is, is uh, our biographies. I I love reading. I love reading biographies and it's tough to have the same main character from one biography to another. Uh, Uh, It's always a different person, but those are the books that always tend to. Yeah. um, So
0: who's your favorite biography character from a biography?
2: I don't have a favorite. I don't, I don't have a favorite. Uh, I just read a, a one about, forget the name of it, um, Kent Brantley. He was the U.S. doctor in Liberia who caught Ebola and um, uh, was the first first American treated with Ebola on on U.S. soil. That was in the news not too many years ago. That was the recent one that that I read. I think the very first time I remember loving biographies was I read R.A. Jaffrey. He was a, a missionary with a crazy story about being kidnapped and Um, being held hostage and just a fascinating, fascinating story. Steve Martin's biography Mm -hmm. was a super enjoyable one to read. But I don't don't know if I have a a very favorite one. Is there like a character
0: quality that you gravitate to in those biographies?
2: I am inspired by people who I think the reason I like so many is I'm usually inspired by people who were able to accomplish a lot with the life that they live. Uh, I'm inspired by seeing people who do uh, amazing things and incredible things and um, looking at my own life and measuring it with what they were able to do and what they were able to accomplish. I always find it very motivating and inspiring. Of course, most people who have biographies written about them, uh have accomplished something significant in their life. But that's that's always the quality that that that's the reason I like reading biographies and probably the reason they're my favorite hmm. genre.
0: When you think about like your life, you know, as lived this far, if you know someone were to write a biography about it do you think you would enjoy reading it?
2: Uh, depends how much they got right about me. <laughs> um,
0: I mean, assuming it's not like weird reading about yourself, but just like
2: would it measure up
0: to the biographies that you love?
2: Oh, I, I don't think so. No. No, not yet. Not yet. I think there's – um. Still some things I'd like to accomplish. I think the, the best biographies uh, represent a long life lived that was faithful and, and true um, as opposed to um, a short moment of life well lived, right? And then who knows what happens and what change they go through when money or fame or tragedy hits. I would much prefer to read my biography knowing that I stayed true to my values till the very end. That's the book that I would prefer to read. It's great. To one written in my forties when who knows what the next 30 years could look like. Yeah.
0: Well, Joshua Becker, thank you so much for your time and uh, have a great rest of your day.
2: Yeah, it's been good, man. Thanks for having me on. Thank you.
0: All right, let's get into our character study segment of the show. This is where we ask what we can learn from Joshua's story and apply to our own lives as we try to live a better story. Alice, what was your takeaway?
1: I thought it was really powerful the way that he talked about starting with purpose. How It wasn't that the end goal was minimalism. The end goal was living in more alignment with his purpose, and he realized that stuff a lot of the time was actually getting in the way of that. And so when he was decluttering, he was doing it with this intention of realigning with his purpose, with bringing all of the ele- the areas and the elements of his life into alignment with his purpose. So then that he asks that question of what is the purpose of my life? Like what is my goal as a person in this world? What is important to me? What's the purpose of a home? What's the purpose of a room? I thought those were really fascinating questions and I'm going to be wandering around my house tonight bl- looking at every room thinking, but what is the purpose of this space and how can I curate this for that purpose. And what's the purpose of a business as well? I think a different section of the conversation when he talked about is the purpose of a business to make money or is it to help people? And how do you, if you focus on making money, you're going to lose sight of helping people. And if you focus on helping people first, then the money will follow. And also that may mean making some decisions that sometimes seem counter to what uh, developing a financially continually growing business might be when he talks about instead of getting a larger email list, maybe going deeper sometimes with the people that he's already connected with.
0: Yeah. No, it's interesting to think about that from an application into business. I think people say, if you try to be great at everything, you'll be great at nothing. And just the level of focus it takes to be great at one thing. I mean, it can kind of be all consuming, but if you Try to spread everything around, you really just spin your wheels. And I think about Apple, and they have like 17 total products, which is not very many for a company that's one of the biggest companies in the world. And it's because of that like intense level of focus. Yeah. So that's a great thing. And I think we can apply that to our things and our spaces and bring a similar level of focus to those spaces and actually make our lives so much easier and better.
1: For sure. Yeah. What was your takeaway?
0: So my takeaway was to take action, actually. So I listened to this interview. I did this interview, obviously. Uh, (laughs) I had this conversation with Joshua. And then uh, I read this other New York Times article just like a few days after that talked about how to make your kid's bedroom more like a Montessori thing. And it was all about like getting rid of stuff and making it a more peaceful place where kids can actually have focus and more fun. And you know, for me, I have three kids and they're all in one bedroom. And what ends up happening is we have like way too much stuff in their room. And Saturdays become these marathon level cleaning sessions where someone is crying by the end. Usually everyone is crying by the end, including me. And it's just really hard. This sounds miserable. It's miserable. And so, you know, this was really inspiring to me. And I know Joshua said, don't go clean your kids' room first. Um, But my (laughs) other rooms were actually pretty good. And, you know, I've been thinking about minimalism for a long time, you know, since I was in my mid 20s. So this is not a new idea to me, but I don't know why. Like I never thought to bring it into my kids room. So we together got rid of like 80% of the things in my kids rooms. And now everyone is so much happier. It's crazy. And they got involved too, choosing what would stay and what would go. And you know cleaning up for them is so much easier they actually play with the toys in their room where they wouldn't before and yeah it's just so much better
1: sounds wonderful it makes me want to go back to my room and throw out 80% of the things in my room now
0: yeah yeah i mean i i think less stuff gives us more peace and i think that's what i learned from this interview and i think I wanna bring that into more of my life, into my work, and really kind of get down into the purpose and what stuff do I actually need to accomplish my purpose?
1: Yeah, throw away 80% of the elements of your life in every arena.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe not, but maybe. I don't know, that could work. All right, so today's character test challenge, and that means we are challenging you to do something, is to go through one small section of your house. Maybe it's a corner. Maybe it's a rack in your closet. Maybe it's one bin in your kid's room. And then do the Becker method. Pick up each item, ask, does this contribute to my life's purpose? And if not, put it in a trash bag to give away or throw away then let us know how it goes at charactertest at gmail.com so we can hear your story and share it. We will pick one person who completes the homework to share. So please email us if you finish your challenge. And that's it. That's our show. Thanks to Pictures of the Floating World for our theme music. Don't forget to go to charactertestshow.com/slash episode eight for your free prize. And we have a new review, right, Alice? What did it say?
1: It says, I went from only listening to true crime to listening to the first three shows of this podcast in a day. I'm a big fan of the team, Alice and Joe, the concept and the discussion following each interview to learn how to apply the guest's life lessons to our lives.
0: Love it. Thank you so much, Klein. That was awesome. So please go to your podcast player, find whatever button you need to leave a review and then write a review. It can be as little as one sentence and click submit. It'll take you 30 seconds. 30 seconds. your review will change our lives. Please do it for us. Thanks, everyone.